Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, in this week's episode, we are not doing any interviews and we are not speaking with any guests, but rather Aiden and myself we realized how much has the role and the importance of fitness for our past decade in our lives. I personally have experiences of lifting religiously for about seven years, and Aiden has been lifting in the fitness culture and the fitness regimens in about six or seven years. And we want to kickstart off this new year and this new decade of 2020 by synthesizing some of our lessons from our experiences and some of the hacks and lessons that we learned with ourselves and some of the research from other friends of ours trying to consolidate into something that's tangible and something that's easily digestible into 20 hacks to make 2020 the healthiest of your life. With that being said, I want to turn the mic over to Aiden for him to share some of his journey and what are the greatest lessons and what are the key takeaways that he've learned for the past seven years of his fitness journey. Sure. Thanks, Ben. And I'm really excited to jump into this topic because it's something that's played a large portion in my life for you know the past decade or so. I want to first say that I don't think anyone has like a weight loss problem. That was, you know, myself included. Whenever I knew that I wanted to lose weight, you knew how to do it. You know, it's just eat your vegetables, eat less calories and exercise more. But I think the problem lies in regaining the weight and making sustainable changes the real issue at hand. I definitely grew up uh, very overweight. I was very athletic, but my obesity was the thing that kind of held me back through a lot of those things. I played goalie and played handler in Ultimate Frisbee, meaning I was like basically the quarterback. So it was always trying to work around my, you know, inability to run through that. So then fitness came into my life when I was in college and started lifting pretty similarly to how most people just looking at bodybuilding.com and reading magazines and all of the extraneous information that's out there. But it really took until once I graduated to kind of settle in and figure out where I want to consume content from and what is actually truth and what is actually people trying to sell you things. Um, I think there's a lot of BS information out there these days, which is the tricky thing because neither Ben nor I are, you know, personalized trainers or educated in exercise science, but what we are is lifelong learners and we're very diligent about the research we do and 
compare sources between different articles and different researching. So what we've done is create 20 lessons or 20 hacks that really outlines the biggest lessons learned that we've learned over the past six to eight years. So once I really found a steady stream of research and really started to figure out what was right, what was wrong, um, I've definitely embraced the fitness and nutrition over the last few years. Uh, most notably in 2019, I've finished a precision nutrition certification, which basically is a giant textbook of nutrition information and then how to actually be a coach. So although I'm still starting to just work with clients now, I have definitely educated myself on what different nutrition modalities work and why they work and how to make change in those different areas. And I guess just some quick background on where I am now with fitness. Um, in 2019, I did two half marathons, a Spartan race, and you know, continue to work out every morning. So it's not that we have everything figured out. We're certainly still improving, still growing every day. There's you know, still exercises that I struggle with, but I think for the average person, we've learned a lot and transformed a lot using fitness as that key pillar. And we really just wanna share our experiences over the last eight years into something small, concrete, and most importantly, actionable that can help you all make 2020 the healthiest of your life. So that being said, I wanna turn it over back to Ben, have him share you know, his experiences and I guess his context for what we're gonna be talking through. Thanks, Aiden. Yeah, so similar to Aiden, I did start my fitness journey about seven or eight years ago. And uh, him and I, we share similar experience where we both were considered as chubby and overweight, which definitely affect our self-esteem and our confidence. And there were definitely various aspects to bowling and other adversity we had to go through because of our weight problems that many people do share in this current culture in the Western society. And so the reason and the first why, I guess, that prompted me to start the fitness journey because I simply wanted to lose weight so I don't get bullied by my friends and I just, you know, look better and, you know, I guess attract more girls and be more popular. But of course, I did play varsity football and, and basketball in high school. So I did work out pretty religiously. However, I lacked a lot of knowledge and experiences and a lot of, I guess, tips and key takeaways that we hope to establish through this episode. And yeah, and I did really start really, really working out in the morning after my high school and college because a Penn State is such a big school with such a wide range of athletes, people from all over the place with different physiques and different wealth of knowledge. So I did start to work out uh, pretty, pretty basically without a lot of knowledge. And of course, the saying is experience is the best teacher. And although I was able to consistently work out for a while, I wish I knew a lot more insider scoop and a lot of knowledges that I didn't have back then, because it's not necessary to create a shortcut, but to although to optimize and maximize the effort that I'm, I'm able to input in because you want the output that matches your input of effort. But a lot of times with a lot of novice lifters and people who are new to the fitness journey, they don't really have that perspective and experience because of uh, they just haven't done it yet. So yeah, that is hope. That is our hope with this episode is we were able to somewhat distill as much of our knowledge and experience as possible into very 20 digestible forms. And we are going to share 10 themes that we really think that related to our lives and that really benefited us in the past seven to eight years of journey. And we also have broke down and distilled 10 other more specific key takeaways and pointers that we hoped 
to benefit some of you guys in this new journey for the new decade and the new year. Because what a lot of problems that we do see is everyone does work out super passionately, enthusiastically for the first three or four weeks of January. And then, you know, of course, everyone knows that the gym is super packed, the wait is long, and everyone, there's a huge influx of new people signing up for the gym memberships or yoga or whatever other favorite workouts there are. But after the month passes, the gym is decongested. There's no more people anymore. There's less traffic because people think they've achieved their goals of whatever that goal may be, but it's not a sustainable goal. And like what Aiden talked about in the beginning, the U.S. does not have a weight loss problem, but a weight gaining problem because how are you going to maintain the progress you've made? Uh, because what is the point of making all that progress and importing all those efforts just to lose them all over again and just repeat the same step and the same goal over and over again? So hopefully with these 20 hacks to make uh, 2020 the healthiest of your life, we can effectively to uh, help out some of you guys out there with some of our lessons that we learned our personally. Our goal and our attention that we hope to achieve through this episode is to really tell and explain to people that it is more important about to being sustainable and to have intention that is long term, but not something not a fad or something a quick hack or a diet that could help you just for like a month or two, but rather true, sustainable and long term goals that are beneficial for the rest of your life. Thanks. Really well said, Ben. So with that, we're going to jump into our list of the 20 hacks to making 2020 the healthiest of your life. So first being clarity is key. Um, Really getting clear on what are your goals, what are you trying to do, and why that's important to you. So I think a big distinction here to make is goals versus intentions because with goals, they're very specific, they're very relevant, and usually have a time circumstance to them. So I want to lose 20 pounds by some by next month you give yourself a timeline you give yourself an actionable goal and basically throw everything at achieving that goal so the great thing about getting clear on your goals is that it has accountability you can hold yourself accountable it's timely you can really get clear on what you're trying to do and I think that's really important because you need to know where you're going in order to get there. Like, what's the saying? If you don't know where the target is, you shoot the arrow and it's never going to land where you're going. In a health and fitness journey, obviously there's numerous specifics and really more actionable things. But before you start working out, before you start going to the gym, really sitting down and figuring out what you want to do is, I think, the crucial part because that really dictates where you end up going. Yeah, very well said, Aiden. And of course, like I talked about, if you don't know what your goals and your intentions are, it is very difficult for you to get there because you don't even know what what you want by doing this journey, whatever, whether that is to lose 20 pounds, lose 30 pounds, get back in shape, or to train for a marathon, you have to identify where you want to go to be able to maximize and optimize your effort to get there as efficiently and as effectively possible. I do want to quickly make a quick distinguishment between goals and intention. So I know some people don't like to set goals because when you set a goal to do X, Y, and Z, and some people may only achieve X or Y, and they didn't really achieve Z, and they might perceive that as failure, right? That might be really uh, defeating for them, and they might never want to set those goals again. And that is why fitness and getting healthier, getting back into shape, uh, whatever other goals it may be, it is the toughest thing to do because of that defeating mindset. 
So if that is the case for you, I'll recommend using the terminology intention instead because you have a certain intention of achieving a certain outcome, but it's not really a goal because that intention doesn't really go away. So maybe you fall short of the intention you've set for that year and maybe you, you didn't quite hit all X, Y, and Z yet, but that is not necessarily saying you've failed of X, Y, and Z, but rather to have the perspective of you had the intention of achieving X, Y, and Z and you achieved X and Y. And you can consider and view those as progress and process you've uh, going to to today eventually. So if goals is not something that you're comfortable with, I recommend using intention. But nonetheless, what is important is to have a clear identification of what you really want to control the outcome. Because once you are able to control the destination, outcome would happen and will happen in a, invariably so. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Ben, because that was definitely something that I was experimenting with in 2019. So for my fitness goals, I had both a goal and an intention. My goal being I wanted to reach a thousand pounds between my bench squat and deadlift. And my intention being I'm living an active and optimized lifestyle. So embracing that active and optimized, you know, health lifestyle really encouraged me to get to the gym to eat correctly and do all of those things. But the if I had stuck to just the goal of the thousand pounds, I probably would be feeling pretty down on myself because I had a slight tear in my hamstring about a month ago. So that made it virtually impossible to deadlift or squat. So I'm not going to reach my a thousand pound goal for 2019. But because I set a goal and an intention, I can kind of balance them. Obviously, I was trying to work out in a fashion that allowed me to reach that a thousand pound goal. But in a lot of times, inevitably things will come up that may be out of your control to reach those specific goals. So instead of getting down on yourself about not reaching a goal, intentions really allow you to embrace uh, more of just like the process rather than the specific outcome, which I think is something that's super important. And, you know, I would recommend everyone experimenting with whether that's a goal and an intention, just an intention, just kind of figuring out what works for you and moving from there. And another, I think, useful thing that Aiden and I, we discussed and we researched and wrote down is to create a specific timeline. And I think to creating the timeline is not to quite hold yourself, you know, like, oh, why didn't you do this, Aiden or Ben? Why didn't you achieve X, Y, and Z? But rather simply use that as a metric or use that as a tool to hold yourself accountable. Because if you want to achieve X, Y, and Z by a certain timeline, you can simply use that timeline as an accountability tool to remind yourself, hey, uh, certain months have gone by, a month has gone by, a few weeks have gone by. Where are you currently in terms of the outcome or the destination you want to get to? So I think there's uh, different methods and different ways how you want to keep yourself accountable. But the few things that we discussed and we wrote down are you can simply write those intentions or goals down. Or you can you know make a recording of where you want to be in the end of 2020, the end of the new decade. So there's not really a one-way fit-for-all methods or different tools, but it is definitely, I think it is very useful to establish a timeline for yourself that is realistic. Because if my strength is only at 40% right now and I can only bench, I don't know, 240 pounds, it's not realistic for me to set an intention or a goal to hit 315 pounds by the end of the month. There's no way for me to increase my strength by 400% in a month. That's just not realistic. Maybe if I take a ball out of steroids, maybe... But so I think it is important to establish a realistic timeline to hold yourself accountable so that when you look back on it, you can either taper your effort or either up your intensity, however that may be. Nice. From there, I think we'd like to go into number two or hack two of find your why. This is also very 
tied to clarity is key. So this is basically getting clear on your why or your motivation for doing things. Most people probably won't have, like you can definitely get healthy without having a why because there's so much motivation and inspiration. What do people call it? I guess motivation porn and stuff like that. Just like hop on Instagram, watch a motivational video and you're ready to run through a brick wall and get to the gym. But finding your why really boils down to getting clear on why you do the things that you do, why getting in good shape is important to you. And this is crucial when things get tough, right? So having a why is really going to be the game changer of when things get tough, when, you know, external stresses come up, when work gets challenging or when, you know, you're not really looking to get out of your bed and go to the gym. Having a concrete why is really important to fall back on when things get tough because ultimately that determines your consistency. If you have a strong why, if you really believe in why you're doing the things that you're doing, then you can ultimately, you know, accomplish anything. Why is a intrinsic motivation, right? And of course, there's numerous literatures and studies and everyone knows this intrinsic motivation and incentives are more lasting and more durable than intrinsic motivation because external incentives and external motivations, they fade very quickly. But having your why as your intrinsic motivation and having why as your compass and your true north is when you get lost, when the journey gets tough, like what Aiden was talking, pointing to, having that true north, having that why as your reason to guide you and to get back in track, I think is very, very important. And it is definitely one of the most important lessons we've learned in our journeys. Yeah, absolutely. This really rings true for me because I can't tell you how many times I lost 20 pounds and then was super stoked about losing 20 pounds and then went right back into my poor habits, my poor eating habits, my poor exercise habits. So having an external goal of losing 20 pounds in a month sure is great until you actually reach that goal because then you just fall back into the way you were doing things. But actually embracing a strong why, a strong intention really allows you to move through the challenges and create that long-standing sustainable change that I think we're all looking for. So our third third hack is starting small. And I think this may be one of the most important that we talk about because when a lot of people, myself included, start a fitness journey of wanting to go all in, they say, all right, it's the new year, it's a new decade, let's throw everything I've got at it. We're going to start tracking macros, we're going to get to the gym six times a week, we're not going to take rest days. It's unsustainable. Going from someone who works out maybe once once a week into six times a week, inevitably that's just a giant gap that isn't a sustainable change because eventually you're going to get overwhelmed and burned out. So we really want to emphasize starting small. I was having this conversation with a friend earlier this week of how I get to the gym at 6 a.m. every morning. So this didn't start as a gym practice every morning. It started as five push-ups on a mat every morning just to build that habit of actually moving my body getting started with the day and embracing that exercise and first thing because I can tell you now if I wanted to go to the gym five times right in a row that would never happen it's really building the momentum once you can do five push-ups then you can do 10 push-ups I've even heard one a lot of trainers will recommend their clients to go to the gym and then not do anything so it's just building the discipline and the routine of getting to the gym. You don't really even have to exercise, but once you have that ingrained in you, it's like, hey, I'm going to get to the gym. A lot of times you'll find yourself there and say, now that I'm here, I might as well work out. But it's really starting small and kind of progressing, building those small wins and starting to generate momentum where you can ultimately scale and not get burned out in the process. 
Of course, and I think I view the lesson three of starting small similar to like dating, right? Because I think a lot of times, for some reason, people view fitness as completely independent and different from other aspects of their life. Like a lot of people think, oh, I I, I want to start working out every day for four hours on the first day. But when you go on a first date, you don't disclose, oh, I'm the greatest person. I'll be a great husband. I want to have four kids and I'm going to have all these things. That's overwhelming information. You don't really have to share in your first date. You have to start small. You have to build that rapport. You have to build that momentum. You have to build that confidence when you're going on a first date. And starting your fitness journey is the exact same way, I think, in terms of uh, dating-wise or any other parts of your life, whether it's business. Nobody goes all in on their first business, right? You risk your you, you assess your risk assessment, other benefits, other uh, upsides and downsides and similarly with the workouts you have to start small because uh, like what Aiden talks about if you go gone ho on 100% right away you will get burnt out and it is not a sustainable strategy so a uh, start small is very very important yeah absolutely and I think that bridges really seamlessly into our fourth tip of being just the power of habits and this is something that we've both talked about and embraced a lot of how much habits really mean to us because Essentially, they are small wins. Habits are essentially starting small and then building across time. So similar to the five push-ups, that's just kind of was part of my routine that was every morning. It's, you know, between meditation, stretching, cold showers, it's just progressing and adding a little bit across the board. So really focusing on one habit each time, whether that's five push-ups, whether that's a three-minute breathing exercise or reflecting at the end of the day, finding whatever works for you, whether that's yoga, whether that's the gym, whether that's running. It's just finding those small things that work for you and that you can do constantly, routinely, eating one extra vegetable, eating one less serving of sugar, or excluding a dessert once a week, but really making the habits of the actionable things that you know you can do consistently and building them over time. And of course, like, we have to recognize the fact that everyone has different habits and different habits serve people differently. So uh, my personal habit is I wake up at 4.30, I do meditate for 10 minutes, and then I do my morning journaling to state my intentions for the day, and then I make my bed, and then I go work out for an hour or an hour and a half, right? And that is my routine every single morning. And I think the importance of routine and the importance of habit is to simply have a clear way of structuring your day because without structure and without the order there's chaos and when there's so much chaos your day is invariably going to be chaotic and you don't really know what to do and all these things are popping on left and right but having that set routine that suits your needs for that day i'm very type a personality i'm a man of habits i'm a creature of habits i'm a creature of routine i love having the same routine every single morning that might be seen as rigid and boring for many people so it is important to recognize that as long as it serves you stick with that routine but it is very very important and almost non-negotiable to have habit habitual practice and to have that routine to structure your day however long that day may be i'm really glad that you mentioned the making your bed habit um i remember you telling me about it before but do you think you could share the audience about who introduced you to making the bed and what the actual benefits of doing something that simple is of course so I learned that the habit of making my bed every morning uh, through my uh, involvement in Army Reserve. But of course, even before that, I read a speech or listened to a speech on YouTube. It's by Navy Admiral. He is the person who led Navy SEAL to take out Osama bin Laden. And he talked about the importance of waking up at four in the morning and to make up your bed. But waking up at four is tough, definitely not for everyone. But everyone, doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, where you are, you can make your bed. Because the whole point of making your bed is making momentum, right? 
by the time you make your bed in the morning, however time that may be, you've already accomplished one task, which instantly puts you in a productive mindset for the day. Because, and if you shower, if you work out, or however other many tasks you've completed, whether you're doing your emails in the morning, you read your pages in the morning, you've already accomplished two, three things by the time most people are just waking up. And having that momentum that we are talking about right now, having that productive mindset, truly, truly has residual effect for the remaining of the day. Absolutely. And especially with making your bed, I love that you mentioned the momentum of it, but I also use it as a safety net in some ways. So no matter how bad the day is, no matter how much stress you're facing, coming home to a made bed is a big, not luxury, but it's kind of a safety net. You know, it's being able to unfold and jump into a nice made bed is kind of an elimination of stress. So having a clean bed is order in your external world, which ultimately helps having order in the internal world. And I do want to mention one other thing. A book I'm reading is called Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday. And in one of the chapters, he mentions build a routine is kind of crucial to high success. So one example he gives is Mr. Rogers, the longtime television host, would wake up at 5 a.m. every single morning and go swimming. Even on Christmas, even on Thanksgiving, regardless of holidays, that was his routine to get himself into the mindset and mood that he needed to succeed in the day. So he also mentions the idea that Eisenhower defined freedom as the opportunity for self-discipline. So basically it's by having that discipline is ultimately how you maintain freedom. So the discipline of making your bed, the discipline of waking up and doing 10 push-ups, just holding yourself that accountable is ultimately what A, yields freedom, but also yields trust and confidence ultimately because say it's your first alarm. That's something we talked about with Anna in a last episode is you know, you're holding yourself accountable to that alarm. When you wake up on the first alarm, you hold yourself accountable. That's ultimately what creates trust in yourself and doing the things that you're saying you're going to be doing, which I think is absolutely huge in just more than fitness, kind of just life in general. So the next lesson that we have is lesson number five is consistency or discipline. So regardless of your experience, regardless of your knowledge, regardless of where you're coming from, the one controllable variable that everyone that could have is consistency and the level of discipline. Of course, it is important to not acknowledge that discipline does vary and different people have come with different level of self-will and willpower. However, anyone and everyone could be consistent, whatever that may be. In this case, it's fitness. So, um, of course, consistency is contrary to nature. It is not uh, contrary to life. So, of course, you know, the completely consistent people are the dead. And, of course, it is impossible to be consistent 24-7. Of course, Mr. Rogers, the example that we used, he chose to instill that discipline into his love to achieve, to swim every morning, regardless of where he is, when he is, whether it's a holiday, the the cold, the snow, or the sunshine. Even though uh, maybe you may not be striving to achieve that level of consistency, you still have to recognize the importance of being consistent in life. So if you want to work out, if you want to do things, if you're not consistent, if you're not at least hitting gym a few times a week, uh, four times a week, however that number you determine, how are you going to get to the destination? Because input invariably dictates your output. And without the input, there is no output. So yeah, really well said. There's not a lot more I can add to that you know we kind of talked through it with the habits and small starting small earlier but one quote that i really like is by abe lincoln of discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want the most that's ultimately the short-term happiness and long-term fulfillment the short-term happiness of binging and eating a pizza or the long-term happiness of feeling well and achieving the physique that you're really looking for so 
that's something, you know, discipline and consistency that we really encourage everyone to embrace, no matter how small the action is. It's really the discipline of doing that small action over and over and over again that compounds and builds the momentum that we're all looking for. And the more consistent you do become, the easier it becomes. So by having that consistency, it will make your why and make your goal and your intention so much easier down the road. Absolutely. So with that said, I think we want to move into number six. And this one's a big one of releasing judgment and expectations. So this is kind of a complex one for because there's so much judgment and so many expectations in all aspects of fitness, right? So judging yourself for falling out the off the wagon or missing a workout. A lot of, you know, times I've personally done this myself. I know it's pretty widespread of, you know, you go to say a family holiday party and you try and be really strict for six hours or something. And then you have a beer or two and then eat a few cookies. And then it's like a fuck it. I'm off the wagon. Might as well be all off the wagon. So all of a sudden a 500 calorie surplus turns into a 5,000 calorie surplus just because you flip that call it fuck it switch for lack of a better word, but really not judging yourself for making those small mistakes and not letting those spiral at the end of it, I think is a big part. And that's internal judgment. And then external judgment, not really judging others for what they think of your fitness goals or what they think of their own fitness goals, right? We're all just trying to be better than we were the day before. So removing all sorts of both External and internal judgment, we think, is a pretty crucial piece to this process. And of course, the main and the important reasons why you want to manage or release judgments and expectations of yourselves and the others is because you have to understand that everyone has different circumstances. Everyone comes with different degree of experiences and knowledge. So how am I and how are you supposed to compare yourself with Arnold Schwarzenegger or other very well-established fitness entrepreneurs or fitness influencers or a lot of other jacked and yoked people you see in the gym? They probably have been working out for 20 years. You're comparing your point A to their point Z or point Y. It's, it's different. It's just not a fair comparison. This reminds me of my first month of working out. I remember I was only able to put on, I think, 15 pounds on each side which amounts to about 75 pounds, right? Whereas I was seeing other people benching 225s, which is 245 plates on their sides. I looked like a weak sauce, you know? I was nervous, I was like, oh man, all these bros and all these people just judging me hard. He's like, oh, look at that Asian kid just benching 75 pounds, what a weak sauce, it's pathetic. If I let those judgments get to me, I would've never started working out. I was like, oh man, fuck it, I'm not gonna work out. I'll never be amount to what other people do. I'll never amount to 225 pounds. I'll never get big, I'll never get yoked, I'll never get ripped, whatever those uh, crutches and whatever those excuses may be, you know, and all those comes from because of other people's expectations and their judgments. But also one thing that I did learn myself, and I'm sure Aiden can relate to this, is people don't give a fuck. They don't care if you're benching 75 pounds, 145 pounds, or 6,000 pounds. You tell your, you know, a lot of times I remember I used to flex in college where oh, I'll tell girls that I go on dates with, yo, I deadlift. 315 pounds i bench 185 pounds i squat whatever and many people are like oh is that a lot you know even with the guys they don't really care you know it's it's an ego thing feeding off of your own egos and it's just telling you all these things that you want to hear and but people really really don't care it's on your head but yeah it is very important to be intentional and be cognizant about those expectations and judgment that 
Don't let those judgments and don't let the fear of other people's judgments cripple actions and cripple your growth. Because at the end of the day, when you're dying in your deathbed, the only person that you're going to compare to is yourself. So like what Aiden uh, talked about, compare yourself with who you were yesterday. And as long as you're progressing, uh, as little that, that may be, it's still progress and growth. So keep at it. Most definitely. Really well said. And I love the portion that you mentioned of judgment within the gym because I've definitely learned this throughout the last few years. For the longest time at Penn State, it was essentially that kind of, what do other people think? It was my form bad. What what are people judging me for within the gym? But kind of the shift I've had afterwards is, A, no one cares, but B, most people in the gym are just excited to see you doing the work, right? As someone who knows how much good fitness has done for me, anyone, no matter what the size, what the athletic ability, what the age, I'm just excited to see them in the gym doing whatever that thing is. I mean, sometimes they're a little strange in what their workouts may be, but if they were to ask, it wasn't a judgment of why were you doing that? It's a enthusiasm for trying to help them improve in some way that's possible. And a big thing there is kind of the saying of what you give out comes back. So that's a big way why I was able to kind of remove the judgment I felt at the gym just by not judging other people at the gym, you know? So regardless of what they were up to, what they're doing, how much that they have disagreed with what my current belief system is, they have different goals, they have different circumstances, and not judging them for those ultimately lets me go into the gym stress-free, not worrying about judgment of others. So I think that stop judging other people and you won't feel as judged is a pretty crucial part within uh, gym dynamics. And another portion of that, we just talked about releasing judgment, but more judging, releasing expectations, I think is equally important. Because like we said, with the goals versus intentions, you can get upset about not making a certain goal or having an expectation of losing so much weight in so much time. So by releasing the expectations and embracing the process, you know, we're big Philly guys, the whole trust the process mindset of embracing that journey of getting better rather than the opposite side. It's ultimately the process where all of the value lies. So releasing expectations, embracing the process is pretty crucial as well. And our number seven lesson is belief change. This sort of ties back with our episode that we talked about with our guest, Nick Boletto. And, but he talks about the importance of uh, changing your beliefs, your belief system, right? Because your beliefs will dictate your outcome and how much output you put out and how effective the outputs are. So it's like the idea of fixed versus growth mindset. So how much you know now and what you're born with does not dictate your future. And because you can keep continuously accumulate and get better at it, whatever that may be. Similarly, with the fitness, you might this might be your first day. You might be the most novice, most beginner stage at. However, because you just started it, and if you keep at it seven, eight years down the road like us, you become intermediate and become experts in some aspects of the workout. So I don't believe just because you're a beginner now, you're going to stay that way forever. It is important to understand and acknowledge that you will grow consistently as long as you follow all the principles and all the rules that we just established and be consistent about it, you will grow. So your growth is not predicated on who you are now, but uh, you will continue to get better in the future. And, you know, that also reminds me of, you know, like the idea of metabolism. So a lot of people get intimidated by the workouts and the fitness and the whole wellness culture because, oh, I'm born with certain metabolism. Oh, my metabolic base rate is super slow. I'm a I get chubby a lot faster than the other people because, you know, everyone is gifted with different level of genetics. And yes, some people do have faster metabolism than the others. And yes, they're gifted with the ability to eat more 
to have more snacks, eat more ice cream, and still look the same. And those are genetics. Those you cannot control. However, what you can control is the effort. By working out more, by being more consistent, by putting in the work, your metabolism actually changes, like your mindset, right? And the more muscles you accumulate, the more muscles you build by working out, your metabolic rate extra increases and your metabolism is fluid. It is not fixed and you will keep growing and your metabolism and your cells and your, your physiology aspects, they're ever changing based on how much input you put in. So do not get intimidated by the genetics you're given. I don't have the greatest genetics. I'm not 6'6". I'm not 200 pure muscles. And I'm not 4% body fat at all times. And But some of my friends are. I definitely have more knowledge than some of my friends and some of my peers. However, they look better than I do and they're stronger. And those are genetics. I just cannot uh, deal with it. However, my metabolism has changed so much since I was chubbier and, and when I was a youth, when I was a child, which is the whole reason why I started to work out to begin with. But understand that my metabolism is very fast now. And a lot of my friends, including Aiden, consider me as a heart gainer. And heart gainer is basically saying someone is very hard to gain weight. So they have to eat an obnoxious amount of calories to be able to bulk. And I've been bulking for a while now. And yes, I do consider my, myself as a heart gainer now only because I've worked out for seven years. And metabolism has drastically increased in the past seven years because... You know, your genetics and your cells and whatever, everything they're gifted with, they do change and they do evolve. So don't let your starting point intimidate you. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that really rings true for me because I actually started off, um, I found out I have a metabolism disorder when I was in elementary school. So this was at a time where I was playing soccer, tennis, and basketball. So I was athletic all year round, eating super healthy, lots of vegetables, low calories, and still just could not lose weight for the sake of me. But it was until elementary, middle school that they actually did, you know, blood tests and figured out that my metabolism, um, so it's my thyroid was just inactive and my metabolism was obnoxiously slow. So once that got fixed, I was been able to increase it over and over and over again throughout college until now. Metabolism is still increasing day by day. So that's a big thing that I think to point out that it's never fixed. And then Coupled with that, it's just belief change and, I guess, a shift of identity. So this is really important to a lot of the work that I did with my coach, Nick Boletto. He was also a podcast guest. Shout out, Nick, if you're listening. So this was a really big thing for me because up until I worked with Nick, I really kind of just associated with being a fat kid or a fat person. Um, kind of that belief was ingrained in ultimately my identity and Nick really allowed me to shine a light on that being the case and shift it ex to something different of being someone who was active and was athletic. And really that belief change was the thing that ultimately allowed me to get down to 7% body fat and really embrace the fitness and nutrition culture as I am now. So I would say that's a gigantic thing that isn't necessarily external work. You can work on belief change within your own room without getting to the gym, but it's really sitting down, acknowledging what you believe currently and, and figuring out how to reverse that into something empowering rather than disempowering. So I would definitely recommend a lot of reading, tons of books online, um, as well as journaling, just kind of journaling through what you believe, how that's affecting you, and ultimately how to change that in the process. So I would recommend journaling to everybody, specifically about what they believe, how that belief is affecting them, and ultimately what belief they want to embody going forward. That would be a great starting place for working through the belief change component. 
And the last thing I do want to add into the belief change lesson is the uh, piece of gratitude, right? So I think it is important for all of us who who is born in this you know prosperous country who have the privilege to even work out is to have that gratitude to understand that by working out it is not a chore. It is not something you should be, be dreading for because it should be fun based on what your beliefs are. And of course, by identifying what your beliefs are, the gratitude will come. But in terms of the gratitude piece, is it's important to focus on the good, right? It's like the mental health component where you should be grateful that you have the option to pay for gym membership to work out in this gigantic setting, this communal space with other people who have the same goals and intention is to be grateful for the fact that you even have the privilege in this peaceful era, in this peaceful country where there's no threats, you're not dealing with you know bombshells and enemies and whatever other components may be. But the fact that you can have an hour or however that a duration may be to have this set aside intention and space and time to listen to music and just to work out, just to work on embedding yourself, bettering your physique, bettering your health, you know, uninterrupted hour or so. So be grateful and have that gratitude because it definitely is a privilege of working out. And I think it is the importance of having that perspective will definitely add on to the belief change lesson. So well said. Work out because you have the privilege to, not because you hate yourself. Work out for the privilege of it. So that brings us into our eighth point of there are no shortcuts. It takes work. We outlined in the seven things before this, it really is the long-term consistency of doing small things over and over again, not one pill that's going to suddenly change things, but rather the sequence and consistency done over and over again. And we do think that just with the way that medicine is moving one day, whether that's in 15 years or 50 years, I think there will be some sort of magic pill that gives you all of the benefits of exercise, all of the hormones, all of the muscle growth, all of the fat loss. But I almost fear that day because most of the benefit of exercise and fitness comes in the internal rather than the external. If you're just taking a pill, you're not going to develop the discipline, the consistency, the hard work that is learned in doing fitness the proper way. You have no mental battles to deal with. You don't have to overcome struggle. It's creating a pill will ultimately remove most of the benefit that ultimately comes from fitness and nutrition. Absolutely. However, with that being said, if any of the listeners out there do discover a magic pill that gives us the perfect APAC and the perfect 200 pounds of muscle, please let us know and send us the demon because I will definitely purchase that pill. But of course, all jokes aside, yeah, I do think that your your fitness, your your health, and your physique is one of the very few things in this life, especially with all the technology, all this modernism, the one of the very few things that you truly cannot buy with money. And because, you know, because it takes work, it takes time. Of course, maybe 50 years down the road, 100 down the road, that maybe that magic pills do occur in that day. But it's like the same question, right? Many people, you ask yourself, if you had the option to travel back in time and eradicate and eliminate all the hardships and adversities you've come to to become the person you are today, I, I reckon that most people will say no because many people do recognize the importance of the lessons they've learned. Because the person who I am now, I'm 26 now, Without the 26 years or however years of hardships and all the lessons and all the curly passes I've went through, I will not be the same person as I am today. I will not have the same podcast. I will not have the same lessons. I will not have the same virtues because that's that's just not possible because you only learn through vulnerability. You only learn through adversity. You only learn through discipline and being consistent. So yeah, fitness and health and physique, especially physique, you cannot buy with anything. You have to put in the work. 
you have to you have to be consistent so i absolutely agree really well said and it's the work and the discipline and the consistency that really builds the resilience and character that comes out on the other side so our ninth lesson is everyone is different and this is definitely one that is learned through experience i think um, especially having a lot of friends that are involved in fitness working out with other people comparing notes because a lot of things worked for me really well that don't work for other people. I mean, specifically just the way that we go back and forth about fitness and nutrition. He's kind of a hard gainer. It's really tough for him to gain size. For me, it's tough to lose weight. So I'm basically cutting my whole life as an overweight person. But that is a completely different strategy and, I guess, approach to everything that we do. So there's no real one-size-fits-all because we're all different. As much as There are general principles that apply across the board between all people of all ages in health and nutrition. The specifics really boil down to each individual person. And I think the important thing here is to say that you're in charge. No one knows more about your own body than you. Just how you feel, how, say, dairy makes you feel, how gluten makes you feel. I know a lot, like... You eat pasta for almost every every lunch, right? I almost can't eat pasta or gluten because then I get super lethargic. I have a moderate gluten intolerance. It's just we're all different and have to learn what works for our specific bodies and not get overwhelmed with the detail or information that's out there that might work for other people. Yeah, it is very important to have that recognition that, yes, everyone is different and it's just simply not realistic or possible to copy or follow the exact same regimen that works for someone else to myself because you have to experiment with your body you have to experiment with time you have to experiment with different things to truly find out what suits your need what suits your workout what suits your lifestyle because everyone has different schedules everyone have different metabolic rate everyone eats differently everyone have different preferences and you have to have to uh, let that sink in to truly truly understand you're allowed to use some of uh, references and some of the expertise and some of the lessons as point of reference. However, don't copy those exactly because that person looks different than you are, might even be the different sex than you are. And so how can you copy that person's regimen completely because you're two literally different people. So uh, keeping that in mind during your fitness journey. Absolutely. And one thing that I would recommend kind of just experimenting with different things, right? So in 2018, I did a full vegan month, a full paleo month, a full ketosis month, and a full just if it fits your macros month. So I was really able to compare what worked for me, how I felt at different times, what foods that was ultimately how I determined I was gluten intolerant is when I completely cut out gluten, I was able to recognize that it was making me feel lethargic, it was making me tired. So really doing elimination diets where you're not eating certain things or eating only specific things is really helpful in determining what works for your specific body at the time. And a big thing here is that certain things I think work at certain times very well, right? So in the summer when there's lots of fruits and veggies out, there's the sun, I think a plant-based regimen definitely does a lot of good for a lot of people. But kind of in the winter, I personally really like doing a lower carbohydrate diet just because we're moving less, there's less sunlight, it's kind of difficult to manage uh, the blood sugar swings, at least I find it kind of challenging, Um, especially with no sunlight out. I just generally can control my energy levels and my mood a lot better if I'm not consuming refined carbohydrates. So that is why I will eliminate or monitor my carbohydrates a lot during the winter and then completely change that in the summer. So it's really experimenting, different trials, different 
experiments and seeing what works best for you. So I think that bridges really well into our 10th tip of cultivate intuition. So this is a big thing that we talked about in our last episode with coach Anna Robinson, and it's basically figuring out what works for you through the experiments that we talked about. So I think counting calories is definitely a good starting point sometimes just to develop the awareness and develop the, I guess, knowledge of what an actual serving of a specific thing is. But most people don't want to count calories the rest of their life. Uh, This is something that I've done for months at a time. But ultimately, living a happy life, I don't want to have to be counting calories when I'm out at a dinner party or out at a restaurant. So it's really figuring out intuitively what to eat based on what your body is saying. And ultimately that comes down to experiments and really listening, getting clear on how you feel, what's making you feel those ways and how to manage your food choices accordingly. And the importance of cultivating intuition, or in this case, I guess, developing your intuition is that, you know, after a while, you don't have to bring a measuring cup with you. You don't have to bring a food scale with you, whatever you go to wait. You're like, oh, wait a minute. Let me measure exact 30 grams of sweet potatoes with a burger. That's not realistic, right? And you don't want to be a burden to your company, to whoever you're with, uh, whether you're dining out or through a dinner party or with your family. So you will get to a certain point through enough experimentations and through enough experience where you can just gauge it very well. They're like a ballpark where, oh, this is about 500 calories or this is about 40 grams of protein, 20 fat, you know, uh, 40 carbs. Whether you're doing with macronutritions or whether you're counting calories, you will have the intuition and you will be able to have the capacity and the ability to gauge that uh, just with your eyes. So, and it makes your life a lot simpler. And that's where I currently am. I haven't really tracked uh, exact calories or macros in a while. And of course, granted, I am bulking. So I'm basically on a seafood diet where I eat what I see. But I do track my uh, protein because protein is a little bit hard to develop, even with intuition. But however, with carbs and other intake, I can gauge pretty accurately most of the times because I took the time and the consistency to develop and cultivate my intuition. So, and there's many different ways to cultivate your intuition. And it is because intuition is such a meta topic that, you know, even during our interview with our coach, Anna Robinson, shout out Anna, that uh, intuition is very, very difficult to uh, measure. So uh, I, I said, all of these lessons that we listed out for the top 10 lessons, we intentionally to listed them in, in a chronological order where if you follow these 10 lessons step by step, uh, intuition comes last because intuition is only possible through all the lessons that comes beforehand. So take the time. Uh, don't get frustrated. Be patient with yourself, but you also be consistent and just keep uh, experimenting with different things and different regimens to find the one regimen that truly, truly works for you and the most compatible with your lifestyle. And do you like that? And this that's a good uh, easy way to make this fun, make this sustainable and make this uh, most importantly effective in terms of your growth. So a big thing here is, I think, to point out the importance of food, not just for a nutrition standpoint, but also the social dynamic of food. Because I was definitely on the far spectrum of, call it OCD about food consumption, when I was really tracking, really taking everything into account of what I was eating. You know, there was a period of time where I was measuring my spinach, measuring my broccoli, which was great for, obviously, nutritional purposes and great for developing that expertise and that knowledge about what is what and how many calories are in each thing. But it ultimately was sabotaging my relationships. It was sabotaging my relationship with food. And I think that's a very slippery slope for a lot of people that take fitness so seriously because 
ultimately you do want to monitor. It's obviously gives you the control over what you're putting in your body, but food is so much more than nutrition. It's really the social dynamic of going out and having a dinner with your friends or enjoying a spaghetti dinner with your family. So I would encourage everybody to sometimes set aside the specific calories or the specific macros if the social implications of it is more worthwhile, right? If having your grandmother's chocolate chip cookies should be more important than meeting your calories for the day. So really embracing that idea that food can build relationships, food can build new experiences, and not just getting caught up in the numbers and the macros because that's a very slippery slope that I personally fell down and have built back up that I wouldn't want to see other people falling down. And just to quickly define macros, uh, we are referring to them as macronutritions, which are categorized under as protein, fat, and carbs. And every type of food out there comprise of all those three components, which is fat, protein, and carbs. And those are macronutritions. And if any listeners want to uh, learn more about macronutritions and what we mean by that, uh, feel free to look them up. But that's what we mean by macros. So if you're still listening, thanks for making it through the first 10. Um, Those were more structural approaches to fitness and nutrition. So things that you can actually do to implement the above strategic ideas. So these are going to be much more tangible, much more actionable, and we hope you enjoy them. So our first being super simple, drink more water. This is a gigantic thing for anyone. About 78% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. And working in corporate America, I can see this firsthand. So, for example, sometimes I'll see coworkers drinking three to four cups of coffee in a morning and afternoon before they even touch water. And oftentimes this is followed by anxiety, by dehydration, by lack of focus. So really just drinking a cup of water as soon as you wake up. When you sleep, you lose a ton of water. This is often why, you know, you're thirsty in the morning or say after a night of drinking, have you ever noticed when you just have absurd abs or a really lean physique the morning after drinking? That's because you're so dehydrated and it's just like basically your body and your muscles and bones and things. So really prioritizing water first thing when you wake up and throughout the day does a load of difference. There was a study conducted in Lowenborough University that found just a 5% drop in water levels can cause a 25 to 30% loss in energy. So, and even a 3% drop can cause fuzzy thinking, brain fog, and a slower metabolism. So a lot of times at work, if I'll ever feel myself fading, like say I'm working through a work paper and I just suddenly can't focus or I'm getting irritable of not being able to figure out, take a little walk, go to the break room, drink a cup of water, come back and kind of reset. And that water generally allows you to kind of reset, get your body properly hydrated, and really think correctly. So we'd really encourage anyone to drink more water. Um, A recommendation we found is your weight divided by two, drink that many of ounces. So I'm 200 pounds, so I'll aim to drink 100 ounces of water a day. Generally drink a lot more than that, but just as a general starting point, make sure you're getting at least that amount um, going forward. And the benefits of drinking more water is, of course, widespread. For example, Everyone knows the saying of you can survive a month without food, but only a week without water. So that, of course, talks about the importance or the absolute importance of water in your daily intake. So yeah, keep up with water. Of course, the large consumption of water has numerous health benefits, such as it increases your skin tone. 
it decreases your acne it, it improves your overall health the glows and you know the more water you take the more water break you have to take so it gives you a natural excuse to uh, take a little walk go to the bathroom leave your cubicle a little bit uh, for how often as you need so uh, drinking water only has uh, upsides and benefits no downsides so kind of bridging off water this is also water related uh, step two or tip two is taking cold showers and this one's definitely a tough one because taking a cold shower seems pretty miserable and sometimes kind of psychotic but it's really just the last 20 to 30 seconds of your normal hot shower. It's not a huge thing. So America's facing a huge stress problem, whether that's waking up and drinking a coffee right away, spiking cortisol levels, living in fight or flight all day long between emails coming in, phones coming off, checking social media and having the small dopamine hits. It's just chronic stress is pretty much everywhere. And one of the best ways to fight this chronic stress is actually by acute stress. So there's a process called hormesis that basically means that acute stress will help you adapt and become stronger. So by taking on small stressors, you can actually help overcome the more chronic stress. So cold showers or cold exposure is pretty much my favorite way to do this. By turning the knob super cold in the last 30 seconds and really focusing on your breath, focusing on being present within that cold water, you can really create a mental override in a lot of ways of just if you can take a cold shower you can do pretty much anything if you use chances are that's the thing that's going to suck the most of your entire day having an ice cold shower so doing that first thing in the day is one of the habits kind of bridging back to our top 10 tips the cold therapy really allows you to create that mental override there's numerous other benefits including increased energy levels and fat loss so when you take the cold shower hold your breath, it releases adrenaline and norepinephrine, which are both chemicals um, similar to the ones after running, kind of the runner's high feel. Um, obviously, there's a willpower and discipline component, similar to what I said, that mental override. If you can do a cold shower, you can willpower your way through most things. And I think the biggest component is increased immune health. So there's several studies that show people who take a cold shower often have higher white blood cell counts than those who don't. And white blood cell counts are crucial in fighting disease and I can say firsthand, I've been taking cold showers for the last two years and knock on wood, still haven't been sick. So not as much of a cold, not as much as flu in two years, just from having that consistent cold shower every single morning. So can't recommend them more. Yeah, I agree. He, Aiden, did tell me about the cold shower benefits, I think last week when we're brainstorming for this episode. And I, I took my third cold shower uh, in the morning. Uh, I know this is a weekend, but I, I wanted to be consistent with the habit building. And yes, it is absolutely brutal. The last 30 seconds, I don't really know the benefits as of yet because it has been so brief, but it does wake you up immediately. The cold shower splashing against your face and your hair, it, it does uh, make your skin pretty silky smooth aftermath uh, at least for me and it does give you that residual energy and that awakeness for the remaining of the day so i would strongly strongly recommend to try this out for those people who are you know want to experiment a little bit yeah and the big thing here it's a method called the wim hof method kind of when you're in that cold if you just try and face it straight up it's going to be very very challenging so only by focusing on your breath are you actually able to control your body through it so the idea here is to do very short in and out breaths for 20 to 40 times. So uh, 40 times until you feel yourself not being able to breathe well. And then you just 
and hold. So you bring that last 20 to 40, bring the last deep breath in and hold and just stay there present under the cold water. And that's the thing that really boosts those chemicals, boosts the adrenaline, norepinephrine, and gives a lot of the benefit. Because if you just kind of stand under there, it's going to suck a lot. But by implementing breath and focusing, being present on that breath exercise, you're really able to withstand a lot colder conditions than you would have expected. And I'd really recommend anyone to check out Wim Hof's Instagram or any of his training modalities out there. He's always seen sitting shirtless on mountains such as Everest or in like full blizzards just because he's maintained such a strong practice of this and really been able to do it exceptionally. So that would be a great reference that to anyone that wants to learn more. Another the minor and very tangible and immediate benefit I think of when you take a cool shower is, especially in the winter, which is currently season that we're in, you take a last 30 seconds of cold shower and you come out, usually because you take such a hot shower, the contrast temperature between the shower and then the bathroom, you're usually freezing your ass off. You know, you're freezing because you took a hot shower and now the temperature is cold. But by doing this, uh, you'd be able to remove that barrier and the aftermath will feel a lot warmer, even though it's the same temperature. So that's another immediate benefit you'll be able to feel at the end of the 30 second cold shower session. So our third tip is also pretty simple. Just simply walk more, take more steps throughout your day. Um, I think most people these days, at least people that are listening to a podcast probably have smartphones that all have, you know, tracking devices enabled just Apple health. I'm not sure what the Android version is, but I'm sure they have numerous step counters that just GPS, see how far you take. And the thing here, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, take 10,000 steps a day, but that could be unrealistic for people that sit at a cubicle or just don't have the accessibility to walking that much. So it's really taking a clear look at how much you're typically walking. Say you take 3,000 steps a day, increase that gradually, just really increasing that maybe a thousand steps, which is just a 10 minutes of walking, but that extra thousand steps burns 44 calories, which isn't an exceptional amount, but done over time and allows you to scale up, keeps you burning calories throughout the day, increases your metabolism and just encourages good health. Um, There's a quote from Thomas Jefferson that I really like of walking is the best possible exercise, habituate yourself to walk very far. So that clearly shows that people have been walking for the longest time. I think regardless of the circumstance, uh, the sedentary lifestyle is definitely very prevalent around culture these days. So walking is just a really short hack to just getting out of that, whether it's taking the long way to the bathroom or taking the stairs instead of the elevator. But encouraging yourself to walk more is gigantic, especially after meals. This is something that I heard about this year that has played enormous dividends. So after I eat lunch or sometimes dinner, I will take a 10 to 15 minute walk just to walk off the food for the lack of a better word. And there's lots of studies that show walking after a meal increases satiety. So meaning you'll stay full for a longer time. And it also controls blood sugar spikes. So say you eat that refined carbohydrate instead of your blood sugar spiking, it'll kind of mellow out if you're actually using those carbohydrates for movement rather than going into that full stupor that we all know after Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners. So whether it's post-meal, whether it's in the morning, or just even to and from work, we'd really just encourage anyone to walk as much as possible. Yeah, another benefit is, of course, the last time I checked, when people are taking their walks with their headphones in, whether you're listening to music or podcast, people don't really interrupt you. People don't really go up to you and say hi. People don't really go up to you and ask you a question when you're taking a walk. So that's like finding that 
that small space of order within chaos, right? So by doing that, you'd be able to stay still and you'd be able to find that intentional space of awareness and you will have time to generate ideas. And of course, on top of digesting your food or whatever you're doing, it just gives you that mental clarity just by having that 10 minutes walk, by having that intentional space and setting to yourself uninterrupted. So yeah, walking, of course, only has upsides and no downsides similar to drinking more water. So great lesson indeed. And our lesson number four is more vegetables and less sugar. Uh, I will talk a little bit more about the vegetables part because I am a, a flexitarian. I know that this sounds like a made up word, but it's basically I'm a, a mainly plant based diet and I do uh, eat fish once in a while and uh, I do eat uh, meat on a very rare occasion, such as Thanksgiving and Christmas with my family. Uh, ergo, my, I guess, official diet name is flexitarian. So I do eat mainly plant-based diet because, of course, when you consume a lot of vegetables, of course, this may be a cliche, but as we all know, all cliches are tropes. So vegetables, of course, has a higher volume. So it does uh, fulfill you and make you uh, feel full longer than refined carbs or protein. Whether you examine the studies and scientific findings and research from 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago, or last year, all the studies suggest that uh, consuming large amount of vegetables only have upsides in vegetables. And, you know, uh, having greens in your diets is only going to prolong your longevity, your stamina, your health, and countless other benefits. So, For sure. Uh, green vegetables specifically, vegetables across the board, all have so many micronutrients that are so important in our diet that a lot of times we don't get from normal carbohydrates or proteins. A lot of sayings are eat the rainbow, just eat something of a different color, whether that's, you know, red peppers, green peppers, carrots, just kind of embracing the color spectrum. There's a lot of diets that are based around vegetables entirely. I'd say pretty much every successful or notable diet being obviously vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, paleo, keto, everything is centered around having vegetables. Sure. Paleo also eliminates processed carbohydrates and dairy. Keto or ketosis also is a very high fat meat and dairy centered type of approach, but you still need those vegetables to maintain the micronutrient balances and getting the fiber that's so crucial in everything. So a big thing that I recommend to anyone that doesn't like vegetables, I mean, I think Ben being plant-based myself, I really like eating a good spinach salad or broccoli with olive oil and Parmesan cheese. Very good or even Brussels sprouts with bacon, you can make your vegetables taste good. A big hack that I've learned this year was eating your vegetables with a high fat condiment, I suppose. So like I mentioned, oil on broccoli or bacon with Brussels sprouts, because that high fat uh, allows the micronutrients and vitamins to be absorbed quicker. A lot of vitamins are fat soluble, so you can digest and absorb the material better if you're eating them with fat. And most importantly, they just taste good. If you put enough Parmesan cheese on pretty much anything, it's going to taste good. So say even if you don't like these specific vegetables or any vegetables for that matter, supplement with a greens powder. They still don't taste great, but you can buy them at any grocery store. And that gives you kind of the concentrated vitamins that you'll need um, throughout the day, which I'd really encourage. And then bridging into the less sugar part, this is a tough thing because sugar tastes really, really fucking good. Christmas cookies, Thanksgiving pies, it's just kind of prevalent everywhere. Um, but the example I like to give is giving kids sugar. So if you babysit or you're a parent or whenever you're around kids, you know that if they eat candy and then 
an hour later, they're just a giant asshole. They've got the blood sugar swings. They're all tired. They're cranky. We're the same way. There's, I mean, we can moderate our moods a little bit better than kids, but the chemical component of what's happening with the sugar is exactly the same in them. Yeah, once the sugar's taken in, blood sugar goes up. You're super hyper, super alert, super energetic, feeling really good for about an hour. Blood sugar goes down and you're crashing. You want to take a nap as soon as possible. So this is super interesting to me, especially in corporate America, when we're seeing, say, it's Patty from accounting's birthday and everyone brings cake at 10 a.m., if I eat a piece of cake at 10 a.m., there's no way I'm going to be able to focus and actually get work done for the remainder of my day. I have this conversation a lot of, oh, um, I'll get all of my work done in the morning because generally after lunch, I can't think at all or I can't focus. I have to get everything done in the morning because of that afternoon crash. Maintaining a less sugar or a lower sugar diet will definitely help with afternoon crashes, uh, consistent energy throughout the day, and just mood stability throughout the day as well. And yeah, of course, we all know the terminology of or the phrase of sugar high when we describe with kids. But sugar high, of, of course, applies to all of us, even adults, like what Adam was alluding to. And the last time I checked, there is no such thing as permanent high. That means high comes in very strongly, but also fades quickly. So high is not sustainable. High is not a permanent state. So it's definitely important to recognize that sugar high is real and then the potential adverse effect that comes with it. So it's definitely, you know, as a general rule of thumb, as all cliche states, consume more vegetables and decrease the sugar consumption if possible. But at the end of the day, we are not dietitians. We do not have medical backgrounds in health and nutrition as of yet. However, we really do believe these uh, lessons and tips could be used as a general point of reference as long as they uh, suit your own need and your lifestyle. That leads us to lesson number five or tip number five, supplements consciously. So of course, we talked about in our general first 10 theme lessons that there is no such thing as magic pill. However, what we do have is supplements. Of course, it is not necessary to consume supplements to email to uh, do whatever lifestyle that you need to work out. Supplements aren't needed. However, if you want to, from our experience, to maximize your outcome, it is, I do believe it is a necessity to take certain supplements. Of course, now there's such an array and a widespread of FDR-approved supplements. There's all these things that are fats, but we're just going to stick to the basics. Some of the supplements I do take personally, uh, I have uh, multivitamins, fish oil and creatine and other protein powders. And I will talk a little bit more about multivitamins. And of course, as the title or the name of the supplement suggests, it's a multivitamin. So it's a quick way to uh, take a pill or two which is, has uh, comprised of different multivitamins, whether it's vitamin E, vitamin B, vitamin C, vitamin D, or whatever they may be. Just take a pill or two every single day habitually to consume the amount of uh, adequate amount of vitamins that are needed for the day. And uh, another thing I do take in terms of for my fitness purposes and my fitness intentions is creatine. And creatine is a natural substance that is in many of the food that we do take. A lot of meat, a lot of fish, they do have creatine in them naturally. But of course, uh, according to a lot of research, and creatine is the most studied natural supplement that you know uh, natural athletes and bodybuilders do take. You have to take an optimal level of creatine in most cases five grams per day to optimize your workout. And because what creatine does is increases your ATP conversion, and which means more energy, and it also increases water intake in your muscles. What that means is by intaking creatine before the workout or after the workout, as long as you take creatine during the day. The timing is not as relevant as the act of doing. 
So by intaking creatine with water, it increases your size, increases your strength, and increases stamina. Because by increasing the water intake in your muscles, you're able to work out harder, work out uh, better, and work out just bigger. So uh, I definitely recommend taking creatine. And there is no side effects with creatine. And there is no such thing as you don't need to cycle creatine on and off, such as other supplements. So if you're interested in uh, do your own research, but creatine is generally considered as the most studied natural substances and supplement that people could take. Yeah, I would definitely recommend, you know, multivitamins, creatine, both super important. And that brings us into fish oil, which is also a very important supplement for, I'd say anyone, specifically people that are lifting weights a lot, especially in hypertrophy type training, because hypertrophy um, encourages inflammation, your muscles getting damaged and inflamed. And fish oil is a anti-inflammatory agent or substance. Fish oil is concentrated omega-3s. And that is a specific type of fat that comes from fish and any kind of seafood. Whereas our diet, specifically eating lots of meats, generally gives us omega-6s. So in America, there's a large, uh, large disparity of the ratio of 3s to 6s. And by supplementing with fish oil, you get that additional omega-3s that allow you to exist in a better ratio between omega-6s and omega-3s. If you want more details on that, uh, our coach Nick Boletto explains it super well in the second episode that we posted a few weeks ago. Would recommend checking that out. Um, another supplement that I really I take every morning that I really like is caffeine with L-theolene. So L-theolene is an amino acid that helps a slow release of caffeine. So I'll take this every morning before I go to the gym and then not drink coffee at all after that. So when I was drinking coffee a lot, there was a point in my public accounting career where I was drinking six to eight cups every single day, and that was terrible for me, to be completely honest. Um, I was anxious a lot. I was always peeing. I was always dehydrated. I couldn't actually concentrate. I was just running on fumes from caffeine. The interesting thing about coffee and caffeine is it doesn't actually give you energy. It just blocks the receptors in your brain that make you think you're tired. So that's why you get that tremendous caffeine crash, because when you're out of caffeine, then the receptors suddenly open and then you can tell that you're tired. So you almost have to ride that train of cup after cup after cup. So with the L-theolene, it's a more slow release of the caffeine and allows me to kind of moderate my energy and caffeine intake throughout the day. So I would recommend anyone who drinks a lot of coffee to give that a shot. It's the ones I buy are on Amazon, 200 milligrams of caffeine and L-theolene to balance it out. And that generally lasts me all day. And then the last supplement we'll recommend has been an absolute game changer for me in both studying, focusing, and even exercising. And it's called lion's mane. So lion's mane is a brain boosting medicinal mushroom that's been used for centuries in ancient China. It works by stimulating the production of nerve growth factor and brain derived neurotropic factor in your brain. So what these are, are small proteins that increase the production of new cells in your brain and strengthen existing ones. So NGF helps your brain grow and function correctly while brain derived neurotropic factor creates neural networks and supports brain longevity. So most big-time neurological programs, such as anxiety, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, are associated with low BDNF levels. So while there's not a ton of research out yet, there are several studies that indicate that the brain-derived neurotropic boosting effects of lion's mane could alleviate the symptoms of anxiety and depression. So I use this a lot 
during my work days, kind of right before I have a big project or a big deliverable. So I found it really improves focus, memory, and mental capacity, reduces inflammation, alleviates symptoms of depression and anxiety, and like I said before, may protect against dementia in the long term. So I would recommend anyone that goes on long runs or has to really focus in and work for an extended period of time. Lion's Mane is that, call it all natural Adderall feel, where you can really lock in, focus, find your flow state, but not have A, the illegal aspect of it, B, the Adderall is an amphetamine, which is essentially meth, so I wouldn't recommend people doing that regularly. I mean, everyone who's taken it knows the come down of Adderall, I would say. So I would recommend Lion's Mane as the conclusion of our I guess, supplement recommendations. Of course, uh, with all the lessons we're sharing, but especially with uh, lesson number five with the supplements, uh, we do uh, recommend everyone to have that healthy level of skepticism and do their own research. But these are the lessons we felt personally that are effective to us. But if you're interested in any of the supplements we're currently taking and all the supplements that we've listed, we would strongly uh, encourage everyone to do their own research and do a little bit more readings before they decide to implement their supplements. So this brings us to our 16th tip, eat with balance and get sufficient protein. So like we said earlier, everyone's different. Everyone has different bodies. So different foods might work differently for them. But the overall idea of just eating with balance, like we said earlier, eating the color spectrum, getting lots of different foods, and then sufficient protein is a pretty big thing. So a lot of experts will recommend 0.6 to 1.0 grams per pound of protein per day, depending on your goals and your level of experience. So right now I'm trying to eat one gram per pound of lean body mass, so excluding body fat. So I'm generally shooting for between 170 and 180 grams per day. Um, And that can fluctuate depending on my goals for the year or what I'm trying to do at that point in time. So the big thing with protein is it's crucial in building muscle. It's what your body actually needs for muscle synthesis and putting on that strength, putting on that muscle that people may need. But also on the flip side, even when you're trying to lose weight, protein's crucial because it keeps you full longer. So protein's the most satiating macronutrient of fats and carbohydrates. Eating a high protein diet, you'll definitely stay fuller for longer and not be thinking about food as much. So there was a 12-week study of 30 obese men at the University of Missouri that found that increasing protein intake increased appetite control. But meal frequency, so three versus six meals per day, had no effect. So that's saying that as long as you're getting that high amount of protein, no matter how you're spreading it out through meals, the meal frequency doesn't matter. But actually eating that higher amount of protein will keep you fuller for longer, which is pretty massive for anyone trying to lose weight or even just not be full. I mean, being hungry is no fun, so eat your protein. And just to uh, close that, it's very important to note the title of this lesson 16 is sufficient amount of protein. So if you consume over amount of protein or more than you need, those unused protein will get converted into stored energy, which is essentially what fats are. So definitely get sufficient amount based on the level of activities and the level of expertise and the level of experience they're dealing with. So it's not we're not saying only eat protein, just eating 300 grams of protein. That does you no good. That only is going to make you gain weight. So it's important to take a sufficient amount of protein based on your activity level. So from there, we're going to bridge into some of the more fitness-related elements. Number seven being just lift heavy, lift heavy weights. Something that I kind of had to learn the hard way because for the longest time, like I've mentioned throughout the episode, I've always been trying to lose weight. So 
when you're always trying to cut, you're always trying to lose weight. A lot of times it's get on the treadmill and just run for as long as you can or do as much cardio as possible, lift some circuit-based training. So I would be doing, say, box squats and then jumping jacks and then like high knees or something, but just constantly trying to keep moving and just keep the energy moving. So while this ultimately allowed me to lose weight at the time, it was potentially harmful in the long term because your body responds to the signal it's getting from your exercise. If you're running a lot, it basically says, hey, conserve the mass you have. Try and hold on to any type of body mass. So the people that are doing like an hour of cardio a day, that's basically stomping your metabolism into the ground. If you do cardio after cardio and don't eat enough food, then your body's going to try and hold on to its weight as much as possible. Whereas if you're lifting heavy, you're actually going to trigger anabolic hormones in your body, meaning that it's going to create the signal that your body should create muscle and ultimately improve your metabolism. So this was absolute game changer for me when I came out of college and started lifting a lot heavier and actually tracking how much I was lifting, what sets and reps and volumes I was doing because it ultimately increased my metabolism. So even though I was doing far less cardio, far less There was a point in time where I was doing an hour of steady state walking on a treadmill on a steep incline, six of seven days of the week. But during that time, I was miserable because I was on a treadmill for an hour every morning, and I still wasn't losing weight just because my body was used to that, my metabolism was used to doing that, whereas now I can still lose weight without doing any treadmill work um, just by manipulating my metabolism through heavy lifting and doing hip-based workouts for small periods of time. And of course, uh, as we all know, there is a a positive correlation between your strength and your muscles. And of course, by lifting heavy, you're going to tear up more muscle fibers and which in turn create more muscles at the end through recovery. So the more you work out, the more it's going to to increase metabolism by lifting heavy. And I often like to relate to a car analogy to a lot of friends who are interested in fitness culture or fitness routine is so if you're compared to two cars and a car is an suv and a car is a sedan if you don't know anything about cars like myself uh, we'll simplify it to saying let's say a car a has thousand horsepowers and car b comes with 600 horsepowers and in this case thousand uh, horsepowers are a metaphor for your muscles your metabolism your metabolism so of course naturally if you were to ask yourself which car burns more fuel I would say most everyone would guess it's car A that comes with 1,000 horsepower compared to a car that comes with 600 horsepower. So how do you burn more fuel? By increasing your horsepower. And how do you increase your horsepower? It's by increasing your uh, base metabolic rate. And your metabolism, like we talked about in the earlier lesson, is they will grow. It's, it's not a fixed. So naturally, by increasing uh, your, your weights, by lifting heavy, you're going to increase your metabolism and you're going to increase your muscle composition. So uh, from our experiences, whether your goals are to bulk, to increase your muscle mass, or to uh, cut, to, to achieve a shredded or a more lean physique and outlook, uh, lifting heavy weights is going to ensure to optimize, to maximize, and retaining your muscle composition and your strength. So uh, lifting heavy comes with a lot of upsides and very little downsides. Our lesson number eight in terms of the specific lessons is uh, lesson eight, different training splits. 
So of course, if you go online, whether it's bodybuilding.com, whether you're scrambling from your friends, getting those free PDF files or whatever the outlet may be, there's such a wider range of training splits available in the current programs. And there's new programs coming up every year. And I've lost count how many they are. But I'd say there is a generally three uh, traditional training splits. Uh, one is for a lot of beginners and novice lifters, such as myself uh, six, seven years ago, is bro split. So bro split is uh, super easy to implement and it's basically, actually, I don't know why they call it bro split, but it's probably because it's basic. But it's usually traditionally, such as like Monday, it's generally chest and tricep. So that means on a Monday, you're working on your chest muscles and your tri muscles. And you work out uh, chest and tricep traditionally because they're supplementary muscle muscle groups. But I know some people do chest and biceps, uh, chest and legs, uh, whatever that works for you. But bro split is generally considered as having two muscle group in that one day of lifting, whether you're working out three days a week or four days a week, uh, which is uh, what I did for years. And yes, it is effective. And during your first year or first couple years of lifting, because your muscles aren't used to saturated with workouts and your muscles aren't used to working out very uh, heavy or to work out to begin with, you're going to naturally make a lot of compound of growth. You're going to grow exponentially for the first year or two, regardless of the amount of training splits. However, I do wish that I had the option or the knowledge to know about uh, more advanced training splits or other uh, variations training splits, which leads to my second uh, type of uh, training split, which is a push and pull. So push and pull is what I've done for um, the last couple years and during my intermediate lifting days. Is So push and pull is you categorize your workouts into two types uh, first type is push so you're basing all types of push movements so for example uh, when you're doing push-ups you're pushing yourself against the floor and you're pushing upwards or when you're doing benching you're pushing the bar up or you're pushing the weights up so it's basically any movement that is push and push usually targets a lot of times uh, chest workouts a lot of times tricep workouts and a lot of times shoulder workouts associated with delts so it's basically any movements are uh, doing push movements and the other part of the push and pull is of course pull so it's now contrary to pushing you're pulling so a lot of times such as pull up it's a traditional pull workout uh, a lot of back muscle groups and a lot of back workouts are traditionally pull movements so there's different variations and there's different combos based on your preferences and based on the frequency of your training however um, there's many many uh, different literatures and studies and research suggest that the frequency of training is more important than volume of your training and by targeting and more frequently targeting a muscle group two three times a day by doing push and pull workout versus bro splits where you're targeting your chest workout once a week or you're doing your triceps once a week by doing the split movements it does tend to increase your strength and your stamina and your physique a lot more effectively than uh, the bro splits and the last traditional regimen is uh, upper body and lower body so as simple as that sounds, it's literally that simple. Uh, and this workout is generally for people who's a little bit more busier with less time and they cannot afford to go to the gym four or five days a week, such as with bro splits or push and pull, is you consolidate all your uh, upper body muscle group into one and do your upper body uh, sometimes once a week or twice a week. And they split into the remaining of the week into lower body group, which is your your glutes, your, your legs, and you know just basically your a lower body part. I have a bit of an analogy that I think works, but don't hold me to it 100%. If there's anyone that with a stronger fitness background, I would love to hear feedback on it. But imagine the amount that you train as reaching up to a green light. So say you have to give like 80% exertion to get that green light to trigger the anabolic signal of build muscle. 
you can do that several times a week as long as your recovery is on point. So if, say, you train at an 80% intensity three times a week, once on Monday, once on Wednesday, once on Friday, you're ultimately sending three muscle building signals to your body to create that muscle. Bro split, you're only going to train that muscle group one time, but you're going to go at it at 100%. So A, the reasons why I don't like bro splits is because then you can't walk or feel any part of your muscle. Generally, that's when you get super, super sore because you're doing everything to failure. You're just absolutely massacring whatever day that is. Say if it's back day, you're doing loads and loads of volume. Yeah, you hit that green light, but it's only one time. You're not sig- you're not triggering that muscle growth signal to your body more than once a week. So a lot of times I personally plateaued here for two years, I think it was. So by training the way I do now with more frequent approaches, so an upper or lower body trade-off or a full body three times a week, I think is way more accessible because it's lower volume, lower intensity, but higher frequency. So you don't get as tired. You don't get as sore. It allows your body to recover faster and still triggers that muscle building signal several times. So again, I'm speaking from my experience. I hope that analogy kind of made sense. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And then the uh, similar analogy that comes to mind is, uh, I guess, practice makes perfect. And of course, there's no such thing as perfect in this context. But if you want to get stronger at your chest workout, if you want to get stronger at your back workout, you just got to do more of that muscle group. You just got to increase your frequency of the training. But so by doing more, you will get stronger at that part. How do you get better dating? You go on more dates. How do you get better at business? You make more business risk assessments or you talk to more people. So I think uh, by doing more, you're generally going to increase the efficacy of that muscle group uh, pretty, pretty effectively. So, so yeah, that's a great analogy. Of course, I do want to preface by saying uh, the lesson eight in this case is different training splits, and it is only pertinent to, I guess, in this case, uh, uh, men. And of course, maybe training splits would also be applicable to a lot of females out there. But if you're not into uh, traditional uh, training splits that we described in this lesson, if you want to uh, stick with HIT, which is high intensity interval training or yoga or whatever other uh, movements and um training regimens out there uh, those are all very effective but just for in our cases and our experiences those are the training splits and regimens that we've experimented with and we're currently still uh, on yeah i'm really glad that you made that distinction ben because i think this i guess lesson eight could almost be extrapolated into different training modalities so not only just lifting but also running but also yoga or hit based or biking Um, I've personally found running to be a big interest when it's not this fucking cold outside. Summertime, love running as a supplement to my heavy lift. So I would say lift a full body workout Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I would do running on Tuesday and Thursday and then potentially yoga on Saturday just to completely rehab and make sure that my body's functioning correctly. So really the thing here is different modalities. I mean, all training ideas or all training modalities have some kind of benefit. You just need to utilize them for what works for you. Kind of listen, like we were talking about with intuition, listen to what your body's saying, what you need. Like if I wake up or don't have enough sleep, some mornings I'll do yoga instead of lift and then just get after it the next day. You know, it's really figuring out what different things work for yourself and implementing them with consistency. Our lesson number nine for the specific lessons is sleep as a non-negotiable. I think people often overlook the importance of sleep. Yeah, of course, we are all aware of that fact that, yeah, if you get insufficient amount of sleep, if you sleep for three, four hours, of course, your performance and your mood and 
everything in between is going to get adversely affected the next day. Yes, those are all solid and those are all true. But in terms of our fitness journey, in terms of our lessons to create the healthiest year yet, you have to have to have sleep as the absolute baseline, as the absolute non-negotiable. So I think people have this fallacy and or this misconception often that, oh, you're building muscles when you're working out. That's actually not true. By working out, you're actually tearing your muscles. You're actually tearing up your muscle fibers to create more in addition to that. But the muscles you're growing and you're building muscles and the muscle growth actually occurred during the recovery session, which is sleep. So of course, during the recovery, your body's going to convert all the nutritions and everything, all the energy you've intake into repair all the uh, muscle damages and all the damages you caused during the workout so what happens if you only work out super hard and super consistently yes those are a valiant effort but by not sleeping or neglecting sleep as an important component of your muscle growth your muscles aren't going to have enough energy being converted to repair those damages and those damages are going to perpetually affect your muscle growth and all the goals and the intentions you're trying to achieve so it's very important to prioritize sleep if you want to optimize and maximize your output yeah sleep is so important uh this one really rings home true to me because there was a period of time where i was just overtraining way too much basically when you're overtraining you're exercising too much and not eating or recovering enough so your body never gets to recover all of the muscle tears that ben was talking about right so there's a period of time where i was doing um, a lift every morning or three to four mornings a week. And then I was doing hit three to four evenings after that workout. So with something as high intensity as a hit training workout, as well as heavy lifts, my body just wasn't able to recover in time. So I was often groggy fatigue, just did not feel well at all. And I wasn't sleeping enough. I was actually able to achieve better results when I scaled back, went to about two and two, not in the same day, but rather alternating and sleeping way more. So I would have added two hours of my sleep and removed two hours of working out and actually got better results because I was sleeping more, recovering correctly, and not overtraining. So as much as we can say prioritize sleep, there's obviously a lot of resistance in the process of getting adequate sleep. Um, Most notably, just cool stuff to do at night, whether that's watching TV, surfing the internet, playing on your phone. But these things are all crucially interrupting our um, circadian rhythms or the way our bodies like to sleep. So a big thing here that I was introduced to this year was the impact that blue light has on our bodies, specifically our melatonin production. So melatonin is the chemical that we naturally produce within our bodies that triggers the circadian rhythm, basically tells you when you get tired and when you should wake up. So ideally your melatonin should be high when you're about to fall asleep, but blue light. So the lights that come from televisions, your cell phones, if you're not on sleep mode, as well as your laptop, um, that decreases melatonin. And ultimately why it's often hard to fall asleep after watching Netflix or TV, or even just writing an email late at night. It's because that blue light from your devices are disrupting your melatonin production and subsequently your circadian rhythm. So we'd really recommend implementing Uh, sleep strategies or bedtime routines specifically mine is removing my device or going on airplane mode about a half hour to an hour before I'm actually going to fall asleep and then for the longest time I would journal or reflect on the day on my laptop and I noticed that even though I have a program called flux recommend getting flux on their laptops because that actually 
uh, takes the blue light out of your screens. It's kind of like a dimmer, more yellow look. Um, that's super helpful with blue light at night, but also just uh, writing on an actual pen and paper kind of removes screens altogether. Um, and the airplane mode component, I think, is also really big because when I wake up in the morning, there isn't, you know, 50 or so notifications of just Instagram, Twitter, text messages, whatever. I'm actually able to wake up, um, I guess, on my own accord. And in short, to summarize all the lesson number nine, it's basically saying lifting and the workout itself, they do not create muscles, but it ultimately it is the recovery and the sleep that optimizes your muscle recovery and your muscle growth. So I think it is very important to truly have sleep as non-negotiable in 2020. So our last tip of 20 ways to make 2020 the healthiest of your life is pretty simple. It's meditation or a mindfulness practice. So this is something that has been both crucial in both Ben and I's lives in 2019 as a whole. Um, it really stemmed from me reading the book Stress Less, Accomplish More by Emily Fletcher in January of this year. So since reading this book, I have meditated every morning for probably 90 to 95% of the mornings just as a complete habit. Um, after reading this book, I would recommend to anyone to buying it. Um, it really explains how much good um, meditation or mindfulness practice can do for all elements of your life. So the big thing with meditation is just stress reduction. So as we talked about earlier, sleep is definitely important. It's, you know, the recovery aspect that's really building the muscles and maintaining the fitness element of it. But by meditating, you don't have to sleep as much because it shifts you from sympathetic into parasympathetic nervous system. So sympathetic is when you're in fight or flight, you're constantly alert and awake. Uh, this is what it comes from when we were ancestors and had to keep an eye out for predators and things. We were constantly in sympathetic, looking around, constantly in chronic stress, which is the way a lot of us exist these days when there's constantly emails coming in, constantly caffeine intake. Whereas now meditation allows you to shift into that parasympathetic system, really get present with your breath and present with the moment because that ultimately lets your body relax and recover, um, which has been one of the biggest facts. Another benefit that I've found is the connection of right and left brain. There's uh, in the book that I read, Stress Less, Accomplish More, they outline a study that um, it's been several years, probably decades long, where people who had been meditating for longer actually have larger corpus callosums, which is a part of your brain that connects the right and left hemispheres. So often the left side is associated with more structure and rigid analytical thinking, whereas the right brain is more creative uh, intuitive art forms. So the argument in that book and the scientific studies is that by meditating, you can kind of seamlessly transition between analytical and intuitive thinking more often. So kind of thinking through an issue and then trusting your intuition or trusting your gut for it, learning all these lessons through experience, as well as uh, the books that we've read. My overall idea or analogy for meditation is imagine a two-turn knob or a two-turn radio. So on one knob, it controls how internally aware you are. It lets you get still with yourself and recognize your own internal ideas or thoughts, really lets you get clarity on a lot of the things you're thinking and why you're thinking those things. And then the other knob being a knob towards tuning in with the external world. So external world being consciousness as a whole. So really by getting clear and putting your own thoughts and ideas aside and getting really still 
often you kind of can get some ideas that may be coming from an external source that you might not have thought on as your own. Yeah, Aiden, I think that is a great analogy to help people understand the purpose and the scope and the power and the effect of meditation. So I like to simplify that a little bit for uh, some of the audience because it is very meta. So it is definitely a radio, but the way I look at it is by practicing meditation, by doing meditation, it instills that stillness within you to be present with the current moment. And of course, the catalyst in the book that helped me to embark is uh, The Power of Now with the insider tips and insider scoop from Aiden. But the way I look at it is it is a radio, right? But most of us, we think we think a lot. However, the reality is we're simply enslaved to the our mind. Like we're not in control of our minds. Our mind is in control of us. And we're constantly cluttered with all these ideas and self-dialogues that we have absolutely zero control over. And, you know, that's why your head hurts after a long day because you're thinking of all these thoughts that are generating in your mind that's outside of control. So by meditating, you're simply creating a space, in this case radio, to control the volume in your head. So you get to turn down the volume as you meditate more by being in tune and being more in sync with the thoughts you actually want to think about. So meditation definitely helps you to allocate your thoughts and the ideas the way you want to versus the other way around where your mind is simply controlling your thoughts. So meditation is definitely helpful in that way. And of course, the audiences and you guys may be asking, all right, Aiden and Benoit, how is meditation helping and how is it tied to the lessons of fitness? So there is a common tips that many people practice is called mind-muscle connection. So what it's saying is when you're working out, you want to be present and be cognizant and be conscious of the muscle group you're working out with. So how do you do mind-muscle connection? Because it's very easier to be said than done. And of course, mind-muscle connection also sounds meta. So how do you connect your mind between the mind and the muscle is by being present, by simply you're not doing anything differently. You're not working on harder. You're not doing or adding all these additional movements, but you're literally similar, similar to the breathing exercise when you're meditating. You're simply bringing the awareness onto your breathing. You're not breathing harder. You're not breathing longer. You're simply breathing like you typically do. However, with the attachment of that awareness on top of the breathing exercise so similarly put with the mind muscle connection you're simply being more aware and more present of the muscle you're working on with and that in turn increases the recovery rate and definitely increases the maximum potential for the muscle group that you're working towards so yeah and then everyone meditates differently i know our last guest anna robinson she meditates through a flame meditation she stares at a flame candle because by looking at a candlelight, the flame is present because what candle is lit. So by doing that, it effectively induces you into that meditative state by being present. So I think the whole point of meditation, it's not this deep, out-of-the-world, crazy experience or practices, but it literally is simply a practice and a habit to be still because we're constantly surrounded by distracted by all these obnoxious things going on whether it's social media whether it's our phones tv entertainment our friends or alcohol whatever the the factors may be we're never being still we're always surrounded by endless streams of entertainment so we're we don't really have a space and a setting to be intentional about what we're thinking what we're doing at this very moment and many many people may use this intention differently but at the end of the day, what is important is to truly satisfy that time and the intention to be to be still. You're not looking at your phone. You're not talking. You're not looking at the TV. You're not listening to music. You're just being st- still. And to truly, truly 
uh, being in sync with your mind by uh, practicing to be present at the moment. Because what I like to tell my friends or my clients when I'm working is what, what happened in the past are stories. Present is now. And what is in the future are an idea or a concept. The future hasn't happened yet. The future has already passed. So by focusing on the present at the exact moment, you're going to help you be in sync, whether with the external realities of this consciousness or whether it's helping you be in sync with your internal world by turning up the uh, knobs with the radio. But I think it is a great analogy. And we definitely recommend doing meditation as a great, effective tip and a lesson in terms of maximizing your workout output, maximizing your health, or just maximize the overall well-being of whatever you choose to tackle on that day. So uh, to summarize everything we just talked about, the meditation boils down to one very simple idea. It is the idea of mindfulness. So whatever you're doing at that moment, whether you're reading, listening to music, or conversing with your friends, just be completely present at that moment. Just be there for that person or be there for yourself because otherwise, why are you doing it in the first place? Yeah, really well said, Ben. Um, can't emphasize enough how much meditation has really helped this year. So with that being said, uh, I think we want to come full circle and I guess briefly go back through all of the themes and tangible ideas that we talked through. So from the top, clarity is key. Find your why. Start small. Embrace the power of habits. Find consistency and discipline. Release judgment and expectation. Change your beliefs. There are no shortcuts. It takes the work. Everyone is different. Cultivate your intuition. Drink more water. Take cold showers. Walk more. Eat more vegetables and less sugar. Supplement consciously. Eat with balance and get sufficient protein. Lift heavy. Embrace different training splits. Sleep as a non-negotiable. And lastly, meditation or a mindfulness practice. So we really, really appreciate anyone that's made it through the whole episode. Um, we really think these specific strategic ideas and tangible takeaways um, can help anyone that's looking to make a difference in their 2020 a healthy lifestyle. And again, they're kind of the 20 big lessons that we've learned from our the better half of the decade, our fitness experience. So we really hope that this provided value and help you guys make 2020 the best of your life. And with that being said, uh, we invite everyone with any feedback if possible, but these are generally the principles that we like to operate and we've operated in the past. And we truly, truly believe if you were to follow these 20 lessons or these 20 hacks that we've distilled into hopefully in a simplistic format, you can truly optimize your growth, whatever that growth may be, whether it's your fitness, your workout, your muscle mass, or whatever other intention and the goals you've identified with for this 2020 but we would like to invite you all together collectively to make this 2020 the greatest year and the healthiest year of this new decade. And thank you so much for listening until the end. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.